Welcome to Xanadu Gallery's Red Dot Podcast. I'm Jason Horsch, owner of Xanadu Gallery in Scottsdale, Arizona, and your host for the podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by author Mary Gabriel. Mary is the author of a number of books, including Love and Capital, Carl and Jenny Marks and the Birth of a Revolution, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and the National Book Critics Circle Award. She also wrote Notorious Victoria and The Art of Acquiring, a portrait of Edda and Clarabelle Cohn. I'm visiting with her today about her latest book, Ninth Street Women, Lee Krasner, Elaine de Kooning, Grace Hartigan, Joan Mitchell, and Helen Frankenthaler, Five Painters and the Movement that Changed Modern Art. I had several artists who know how much I love reading art history reach out to me and recommend this book. As I considered picking it up, I hesitated because I've already read so much about the mid-20th century and the artists at the center of the abstract expressionist movement, including Lee Krasner and Elaine de Kooning. I'm so glad I picked up and read the book. Mary tells a story here that's both epic in its scope and intimate in its details. I learned new details about the women at the center of the book, and I gained a new perspective about their challenges and achievements and the vital roles they played in the advancement of abstract expressionism and the place of women in the art world. I'm grateful to Mary for joining me today to talk about this extraordinary book. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks for your kind words. Well, it is a pleasure to have you here. And Mary, you've, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've written on a range of different subjects. What was the genesis for writing this book? Well, this actually started out of a conversation I had in 1990 with Grace Hardigan, one of the women I write about. And I was at that time a journalist working for an art magazine in D.C. And Grace was in her mid-60s and she had been rediscovered. She kind of fell off the map for about 20 years. And she had several shows, New York, a monograph was published about her. And so the editor where I was working said, go see Grace. And I lived in Baltimore where Grace lived. And so I was kind of the natural choice, but I was, I was absolutely terrified because I had known of Grace. I'd been a painting student at the Maryland Institute College of Art and Grace was the head of the graduate painting department there. And so I really knew what a formidable character she was. And I had done my best through my undergraduate years to avoid her at all costs. And here I was, you know, face to face knocking at her door. And in fact, you know, the story that she told me, like you, you know, I thought I knew everything about the abstract expressionists. And yet the story Grace told me during our interview, which was supposed to be an hour, but lasted for four hours, was unbelievable because there were these creatures in the abstract expressionist movement I had never read about before, and they were called women. And and she didn't make a point. You know, she didn't say, you know, we were neglected, and um, this is a woman's story. She just talked about the people who were, who were in the movement. All of them were important, and all of them were working together, and all of them supported one another. And it made for such a richer and more wonderful and exciting story that I left her studio all those years ago thinking, oh, my God, this would be a great book. And then didn't get around to writing it until 2011. In writing a book like this, I've got to imagine that it's kind of um, difficult to strike a balance. You know, as you, you're, you're writing about this very complex period and there are all these different characters. How difficult was it to keep the focus on these five artists, uh, especially when you consider how closely intertwined all the artists' lives at this period were? Yeah. You know, it wasn't that difficult. I mean, it was, there were many moments during the course of this, this, the book took me about seven years. And when I started writing, I said to my husband, oh, you know what? I know this story so well, it's going to take me six weeks to write. And it took me three years. You know, it was com- it was coming out of my pores, out of my fingertips. I knew it so well. But it was a difficult story. And as you say, that there were so many 
kind of threads so many different characters, so much happening in the world, not just in the art world, but in the actual world. But but these five were really comforting as a writer because they were my guides and the reader's guides through all of those periods. So the book isn't just a story of their lives during a 30-year period. They kind of help us understand the bigger picture. So in that way, they weren't as complicated to write about as it, as it might seem, or it, and it wasn't that difficult to actually remain focused on them because I would turn to them as one would a friend in conversations and say, you know, explain this to me, what's happening here? And and really wonderfully, you know, through incidents in their lives and through their own words, they were able to do that. Stepping back and looking at the big picture of what's going on, um, as you say, in the in the broader world, but also in the art world at this time, you know, it certainly wasn't an easy time for any artist to to make a go of it. Um, but much less a woman in that period. Uh, kind of talk about that and the and the position that they were in as they entered the art world. Yeah, it it de- it depended on the decade, really. I, I start the book in 1929. You know, relatively, that's kind of the first significant art date. And ended in 1959 with with an epilogue after that, because that was the rise and the fall of the abstract expressionist movement. But to answer your question, I would have to talk about the three different decades, because in each one, women were had a very different kind of role within the art community. I mean, generally, women in the history of art have been invisible. You know, there was the, the large art history text that most people study in college was written by Jansen, and maybe it's 600 pages, I can't remember exactly, but within those 600 pages until 1980, he didn't even mention a single woman artist. Hmm. And so that was the tradition they were entering into. And Lee was the earliest, the, old, the eldest of the five I write about. And so when she decided to be an artist, there was no tradition for her, especially as a working class Jewish woman. You know, there were the kind of oddball, wealthy women who could go to Europe, you know, didn't have to worry about an income or a husband and, and hang around in bohemian circles. And they had the, the Georgie O'Keeffe's of the world or the Mary Cassatt's of the world. But Lee didn't see herself reflected in that tradition, that minuscule tradition. And so she had no place to start. But the beauty of, of the beginning of this book and that first decade of these artists is that it was during the Depression. And so men and women alike were thrown together through the federal um, arts project, which was created as part of the Work Progress Administration to give artists a job, to give them a paycheck. And there was no differentiation in pay or in attention or in projects between the men and the women. They were all in it together. And since there was nothing to gain, there was no financial incentive and no galleries showing their work. They all fed off each other and worked together, and it was literally one big happy family, regardless of gender. And so that's that's where the movement arose, and it was just a really wonderful, you know, as despite the fact that no one had any money and the world was a mess, these artists coalesced in this group that was sustained them in a way that food and later wealth didn't. And so that's where that that's where that came from. Now in the forties, during the war, a lot of the men went off to fight, and at the same time the surrealists, a lot of artists, refugees arrived in New York. And so this kind of happy family that had been working together um, in New York were introduced to a different kind of artist. And that was a European artist that came out of that more traditional sort of view of women in art. And Lee Krasner says that that was when she was first introduced to the notion of sexism in art, that the surrealists, despite the fact that some of their most important artists were women, treated women as playthings, as sex mates, as 
goddesses, you know, as vampires. You know, they were they were always this this creature, not an actual working artist. And so Lee um, was horrified at this, but that that kind of attitude started to seep into the New York community because these men, almost as much, but not quite as much as the women, also had no one to model themselves after. American artists, male or female, just weren't valued the way that they are today or that they were beginning in the 50s. And so they looked to these surrealists or these fabulous European artists that they had only read about in magazines who were suddenly walking among them in New York. They looked to them for direction, not only in how to paint, but in how to live. And so this kind of misogyny or the sexism in art was something that they thought, well, you know, maybe that's what artists do. And so some of them started adopting that kind of attitude toward their female counterparts. And then came the 50s, and that was the second generation of the abstract expressionists. And those were artists like Helen Frankenthaler, Grace Hardigan, and Joan Mitchell, and male artists like Larry Rivers and Al Leslie. And once again, interestingly enough, they were part of being the offspring of the first generation. They were part of kind of a new collective, a new community who helped each other. And their challenge wasn't to be artists because they knew what that meant, that that was a possibility because they had these elders in art who had paved the way for them. Their challenge was to just was to create something new, something different from their from their abstract elders. And so in that protected community, again, there was no financial reward. No one was buying their work. Only one or two galleries were showing them and, and any other galleries that did were cooperative. So it was basically artists showing each other. So again, there was no competition, and so there was no gender discrimination. By the mid-50s, the abstract expressionists were discovered, and collectors started buying their work. Suddenly, those old attitudes toward, you know, women aren't creators, they're decorators, they don't create the way men do, and their art isn't valued, that attitude started seeping into the movement. It was always kind of the arrival of outsiders that reminded women that they were women, and that reminded the male artists that they were somehow better because they were men. And so that's really the backdrop, the kind of misogynistic backdrop that these women had to work against. Now, none of them thought of themselves as women artists. You know, they were artists, that was it. That attitude was what really helped them avoid and escape any kind of discrimination based on gender. They just did their work and, you know, screw the rest of it. And kind of, um, you know, thinking about how they come into the art world, um, and it's a little difficult to ask a question like this because uh, we have to answer it five different ways. We've got um, five subjects here. But what was, you already mentioned Lee's background a little bit. She's the the um, child of, of Russian Jewish immigrants. But what's the background of, of the uh, other women in this book? Elaine de Kooning, Grace Hardigan, Joan Mitchell, Helen Frankenthaler. Where did they come from? And how similar were their backgrounds? They're, they were all wonderfully different, which also made it really fun to write because each one was such a character in her own right. Elaine was the uh, the eldest child of, of four siblings. Um, her father was an accountant. Her mother was uh, had, had wanted to go to law school, had aspired to be a lawyer, but became pregnant. And so she quickly had four children. And in 19, let's see, this would have been 1930s America, that meant that she was confined to the house and the family lived in Brooklyn. And so Elaine grew up watching her mother, who was a New Yorker, you know, Manhattanite to the core, watch her mother sort of be confined to this Brooklyn residence, this Brooklyn neighborhood where, you know, women baked cookies, baked pies, hung, you know, clothes on the line. And their job was to keep their children and their husband happy. And Elaine's mother 
was failed miserably in that regard. What she wanted to do was educate her children, including her two daughters, so that they would have the life of the mind that she had wanted. And so at a certain point, when Elaine was just a little girl, the neighbors complained to child services that the children, even though their father was relatively wealthy, that the children looked unkempt and ill-fed. And so the authorities came and took Elaine's mother away. And so she watched this woman literally dragged, screaming and kicking from her house to be institutionalized because her quest for freedom was regarded not as intellectually stimulating or intellectually nourishing for her children, but was was, was a sign of mental illness. So that really was a, a foundational kind of experience for Elaine. You know, from that moment on, she vowed that no one was ever going to keep her from doing exactly what she wanted, that she would defy any kind of restrictions, whether they be social or artistic. So that's Elaine's background. Um, Grace was the child of, of a very normal, you know, with a capital N family out of, uh, out of New Jersey. Uh, her mother was a bit eccentric, but nothing like Elaine's. From the, from the time she was a child, she was a, a romantic, you know, to the core, and saw herself doing something more than and greater than what should have been expected of, as a young girl. She wanted to be an actress or a poet or a writer. But interestingly enough, she had no interest whatsoever in visual arts until the war started when she had run off when she was 19 with a, a guy she met during the Depression who also was had aspirations, some kind of artistic aspirations, but was because of the Depression um, confined to work at an insurance company. And so he and Grace married and ran off. She was 19 and they were going to go to Alaska, but they only got as far as Los Angeles when the war started and he knew he would be drafted. So he said to her, you know, you better do something with your life. What are you going to do? And so they couldn't think of anything that she was any good at particularly. And she had just had a child. So they started taking drawing classes at night in an adult education center. And Grace said when she first picked up a pencil to draw, she started to cry and sweat. And she felt this emotional attachment to this enterprise drawing that she had never expected because she had no interest whatsoever in visual arts. And from that moment on, Grace drew and painted on her own. And it got to the point where she knew that that was the only thing that was going to make her happy. And like Elaine and like Lee, she wouldn't accept no. She did what she needed to do. And eventually that meant divorcing her husband, giving up her son, and living the life of an artist in New York. Helen and Joan were similar in that they were both the children of very wealthy families. Um, Joan Mitchell was from Chicago, and her father was a uh, syphilis expert, and her mother was a poet. And she was, um, from the, her earliest age, she was introduced to some of the most famous writers in the United States who had come to their home for, for dinner and to meet with her, her mother. Her father was a bit of a, I won't say he was a bit of a psycho, but he was a, a very abusive man. And he, he was disappointed that Joan hadn't been born a boy. And so he seemed to hold that against her throughout her childhood. And and in response, she wasn't angry toward him. She did everything she could to try to, to gain his love and his attention. And so she was a champion figure skater and a champion diver and a champion tennis player. And at the age of 12, he, he said to her, you must choose between writing and, and painting because um, if, you're, if not, you're going to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. So she chose painting perhaps to, to win his favor because he was an amateur artist um, but that wasn't good enough for him. And so he he continued to abuse her and, and, you know, really coarse and horrible language, not just about what she did on canvas, but about her attempts to learn French, about the fact that she was a girl, and then about the fact that she seemed to be, you know, to act and move like a boy. So Joan was completely confused as a child. 
Um, but that toughened her up to the point that she was able to block out the world, and especially when she was in her studio. And when she started painting abstractly, she said, you know, she finally felt safe because her father didn't understand it and he couldn't say anything about it. He couldn't even, he couldn't criticize it because it was so outside of his experience. And so that's where Joan found refuge. And so for the rest of her life, she painted these magnificent, you know, light-filled canvases that expressed nothing so much as joy. And yet where that joy came from was actually the misery of her childhood. So that, that was her complicated story. And then Helen was, you know, seemingly a golden child. You know, she was born on the Upper East Side of New York. Her father was a state Supreme Court judge. Her mother was a, you know, gorgeous German-Jewish immigrant. And she lived this charm life. Her family was in such exalted circles in New York City that her mother's birthday was St. Patrick's Day. And when the girls, she had two sisters, went to the St. Patrick's Day parade and sat in the mayor's box, the little girls thought that the parade was for their mother because that was her birthday. That's how high up they were in New York society. Helen's father died in 1940, just as the war was going to involve the United States. And her mother was involved in getting family out of Germany, Jewish family members that were still stuck in Germany. And so the tension in the house was really great. And this man, her father, who had created this child, Helen Frankenthaler, who he thought was, you know, extraordinary, fantastic. Anything she did was framed or books, any poem that she wrote was was put in a, in, a, in a book for safekeeping. He was gone. And so Helen experienced what she later said was a, a breakdown. And she it took her several years to get out of that and for her mother to actually recognize what was happening with her. And when she did, it was partly through the help of Rufino Tamayo, the, the Mexican muralist who was teaching at a school she eventually landed in. And he taught her both the joy of art, the hard work of it, and what it was to live as an artist. And so that's where the artist Helen Frankenthaler came from. And so all of these women have very different childhoods, you know, some more traumatic than others. But what all of them shared was this, was this incredible life force and this incredible courage and this incredible commitment to this thing called art that, that saw them through the rest of their lives I think it's fair to say none of their lives ever became much easier. In spite of these varied backgrounds, um, all these threads come together in um, New York during this period where the abstract expressionist movement is being born. How did they kind of become involved in the movement and how critical were they to the development of the movement? Well, Lee and, Lee and Elaine were the first two to become involved in what was you know, what we talk of as a movement, but none of them thought of as anything more than just a group of friends. Um, and both of them became, well, Lee was actually part of it through the Depression, through the Works Progress Administration. Elaine became part of it um, through Bill de Kooning. She met her husband, her future husband, when she was just um, 19 years old and um, was, a, was an art student in New York. And both of them, you know, to, in, to answer your question, how critical were they? were absolutely critical to the way this movement evolved. Lee was considered one of the, having one of the foremost eyes for new art in, in America in the 40s. And, and the person that was the greatest beneficiary of her artistic vision and her, and her uh, connoisseurship was her future husband, Jackson Pollock. Lee was a formidable character before Jackson was anybody on the scene. And she met him in 1941. And when she did, she said she saw in his work this, this living force that she had only seen before in Picasso, Matisse, and Mondrian, 
that this was something that she knew was bigger than anything she had ever seen. And she was, she was, you know, she felt the kind of the, the earth move under her. And so she made it her, her goal, her immediate goal to make sure that he met everybody who was working on the downtown scene. And then she made it her longer term goal to protect him because she realized that this person who, who was the custodian of this incredible talent was also an extremely flawed and vulnerable individual. He was a drunk he was violent. He was reckless in the extreme. You know, if he if he hadn't met Lee, he probably wouldn't have made it through the 40s alive. Um, and so Lee, not because she was a little woman or because she was a wife, you know, a dedicated wife in the 1950s mold, but because she was dedicated to art and also happened to have fallen in love with this guy. She made it her job in life, one of her jobs in life, to protect him and make sure that he was able to create what she thought he was going to be able to do, which was create a revolution. And in fact, he did. So Lee's role in this was not only to support Pollock and allow him to create the work that then changed changed modern art, changed music, changed writing, it affected us today as we create art and appreciate art. Elaine was foundational and, and extremely important to this movement because she gave voice to it. In addition to being a painter, she was a writer. By 1948, Elaine had had various experiences writing, um, some of it doing dance criticism, some of it um, doing profiles for women's magazines. And in 1948, she and Bill de Kooning were really broke and she needed to make some money because he was preparing for a show that she had engineered. And so she started writing for Art News and at that moment, Art News had only begun to write about abstract art prior to that and had written about European painters and, and basically antiques. And so she gave voice to this new work that was being created in Manhattan, which nobody understood and few even acknowledged. And at that really crucial moment when the world was being introduced to that work, it was through Elaine's words in Art News. And then she influenced the other writers at the magazine, including the magazine's editor, Tom Hess, to appreciate this work. And so she was sort of the translator at a moment when people didn't know what it was, didn't understand it, didn't particularly like it, and collectors weren't looking at it. Elaine gave voice in words to what these artists were trying to create on canvas. So the combination of Lee and Elaine not only opened the doors to other artists, but gave them gave them kind of a sense of security and a foundation. Now, the interesting thing is that they didn't really do that to themselves. You know, they were always working, both of them painted, but neither of them were particularly pushing themselves to show. And no one was doing that for them. You know, they were doing that for them, for their husbands, but no one was actually encouraging them to show. So that's sort of the negative side of their story. And to an extent, they were overshadowed by these these um, huge figures that, that were their husbands. And, and so how did they emerge from that and have their own work um, begin to, to, to be noted and, and shown? Yeah. In Elaine's case, she was definitely overshadowed by Bill because she had neither one of them had any interest in competing with their husbands, um, neither Lee nor Elaine. Elaine showed in a lot of group shows because she was such a gregarious character. She was involved in everything. And so she was always a presence there, but no one had seen all of her work together until the mid-50s. And then that was a revelation because she had been working behind the scenes for so long. And in fact, her studio was in her apartment. And so most people hadn't even seen her work. Um, Lee had had several stabs at shows. And at one point, she had started doing work that was so good. Pollock encouraged Betty Parsons, his dealer, to give Lee a solo show. And she did. But by the time Lee presented that work for the exhibition, 
she was doing a different style of work and it didn't garner any of the kind of accolades or even attention that either Lee or Pollock thought she deserved. And so it was really a kind of a a depressing story for them as artists, though honestly, for neither of them, especially Elaine, she never grumbled about a lack of recognition. She wasn't in the business of creating art to show art. In fact, most of the artists, male and female in those days, weren't interested in shows. It was enough for them to show each other. It's hard for us to imagine today when showing and selling is kind of the end goal. In those days, creating was the goal, creating something that hadn't existed, You know, creating a vision of what the world was after the apocalypse of World War II and the Holocaust. And so that's where their heads were. And that's why... Um, The fact that they weren't showing never kept them from working. Lee grumbled more than Elaine. Lee sometimes said, you know, if de Kooning and Milton Resnick came out to their house and wondered why Lee wasn't working, she said, you know, my work was hanging on the walls. If they didn't see it, there was nothing I could do about it. She had enough on her hands trying to create in her studio and keep Pollock sane and sober. So she didn't really um, worry about not exhibiting. So it was in the mid-50s that both of them started to come out. One, because... Bill was well on his way to having a a solid reputation and Elaine could kind of leave. He was off on his own. He didn't need her help in that way anymore. And their relationship had become more complicated by that. And their relationship, right. They had started, they had grown estranged. You know, they were always best friends and compatriots. And, and, And Bill would always be the most important person to Elaine. But... Both of them strayed. It was a matter of booze. It was a matter of, you know, an an incredibly active social life and incredibly kind of voracious sexuality that both of them had. As a husband and wife, they really didn't exist anymore. Um, As artists and, and best friends, actually, they did. In that regard, Elaine was able to kind of step out of Bill's artistic shadow and be the person she was. And in fact, her first show was was really well regarded and people were very surprised by how beautifully she painted and how strong a painter she was. And also the risks that she took because all of the people in the abstract expressionist movement until the early 50s were working with non-objective subjects. In other words, purely abstract paintings. But Elaine chose portraiture as her subject. And that was something that just wasn't done. And so uh, she was a real risk taker in that way. She also did paintings of sports figures, was, which was incredibly bizarre, you know, in the years before pop art. No one painted sports figures, and yet Elaine did because she loved the action involved. She loved the thrust of her brush, you know, which would create an arm in motion. And so uh, both Lee and Elaine in the mid-50s had solo shows. Lee's was so good that Clement Greenberg, who had a very kind of interesting and complicated relationship with with Lee. He was the foremost art critic of the time. He was kind of the co-representative uh, of Jackson Pollock. Um, I say in the book that if there had been, an, you know, if, if Pollock had been painting today, if this book had been written today, it would have been, they would have formed an organization called Jackson Pollock, Inc. Clement Greenberg was sort of the propagandist for, for Pollock and Lee was his manager. But Clem never gave Lee the charity of recognizing her work for what it was until 1955, until she had her first collage show, which was absolutely fantastic. And Clem said to other people, though not to Lee, it was one of the most important shows of the decade. So both these women kind of came out in the mid-50s, which was ironic because that was when the market discovered the abstract expressionists. And that's when, when women started to be devalued as artists. So their timing couldn't have been worse. 
And of course, um, uh, Jackson Pollock dies in 1956. And so now Lee very much becomes her own entity. Right. And she talked about the pressure that, you know, now she really had to perform. She couldn't hide behind Jackson anymore. You know, she could experiment like crazy when he was the one everyone came out to see. But now she was the artist. And so her work was under scrutiny. But she rose to the occasion. And in fact, a year after Jackson's death, she did what was really probably her greatest work, which it was a painting called The Seasons that's in the Whitney collection. The series is called Earth Green. And the, the thing about it that's so fascinating is that she had moved out to Jackson's barn to paint and she was able to expand her canvases you know, to 20 feet. And she let her a freedom that she had never felt be expressed on canvas. And my first inclination when I started writing this book was, well, of course, you know, the burden that Jackson Pollock was, as much as she loved him, was gone because he was dead. And so this rebirth occurred on canvas for, for Lee. But she describes painting some of those works that while she painted them, she was so depressed that she was crying and she couldn't see the paintings through her tears. So, it was, so it's so fascinating to see what came out on canvas, which was life, movement, light, you know, absolutely essential woman's nature. And yet she she said that as she did it, she was, you know, she was in a, an extremely dark place. She was mourning the loss of her husband. As far as Elaine goes, she was an extremely strong person, but she couldn't really understand what was happening in the scene in the mid to late 50s. She didn't want to be part of this flood of money, and she didn't like what was happening, you know, that, that the focus of art was no longer the creation of art, but the selling of art. And so she began taking teaching jobs, also out of economic necessity because she needed to support herself elsewhere around the country. And she became kind of a missionary for art and, um, and introduced a, a yet a younger, a younger generation to the work and brought them back to New York. Let's talk a little bit more about the scene in New York. Um, and I, I'm thinking specifically, if you could talk just a little bit about the uh, the Cedar Bar and the club and the central role that they played in bringing these artists together and, and what was happening there. Yeah. All of the artists from the oldest man that I listened, I listened to about 10, 200 interviews and I conducted some myself. Every single artist involved in that movement, so-called, talked about the community that none of them could have done what they did had they not had this community of supportive artists in lower Manhattan working together, giving each other courage to go back into their studios and take the next chance. And a lot of that revolved around the Cedar Bar and the club and what was called the club. During the Depression, the artists met at a cafeteria on 6th called the Waldorf. And it was a real dive, you know, it was full of bums. It would be cleared out every night at nine o'clock just to get rid of the hoods and the, and the bums. And then the artists would go back in and they, they all sat at one or two tables and talked about art. Well, after the war, when the men came back, that scene became too large. And so they found a loft on 8th Street that they rented and turned it into a meeting place uh, for the artists so that they could just meet. They all had keys, not all of them, but the, the charter members had keys and they could go there undisturbed, drink coffee, talk about art uh, and be themselves. And from the very beginning, there's a there's kind of a myth about the club that it wouldn't allow women, wouldn't allow gays, wouldn't allow any kind of discussion of politics. But Ernestine LaSalle, who's whose loft was used. She and her husband, Ibram Lassau, had a loft where the club was, the rules of the club, so-called, were formulated. And Ernestine was to take notes while the um, club's rules were being written. And of course, she stopped taking notes at a certain point because there were no rules. Um, there was no rule that women couldn't be part of it. There was no rules that homosexuals wouldn't be allowed. That was kind of a, a myth that was perpetrated through the years in the in the revisionism of 
the birth of the abstract expressionist movement. And from the start, Elaine was involved in the club. Mercedes Matter was involved in the club. Pearl Fine and the second generation women, um, Grace, Helen, and Joan were all went to the club. In fact, Dorothy Miller, who was one of the uh, most important people at the Museum of Modern Art, said that people went there every Friday night for Friday night lectures, like they were going to church. You know, it was a place of intellectual stimulation and a place of camaraderie. Um, it was a place where they would dance and a place where they would listen and a place where they would talk and a place where they felt absolutely safe. And so that was one meeting place. But the other, of course, was the Cedar, which was much more open. And that was around the corner. Um, and it was a working man's bar, actually, Franz Klein discovered, because at the beginning of the club, uh, they didn't have booze. And so he would walk around the corner to the to the Cedar to get a beer. And eventually people started going there with him. And it turned out to be a place where um, for about probably 10 years, I think that it was 10 years at that location, every night the place was absolutely filled with the artists that today you would go to the Museum of Modern Art or any great museum to see. They were all there along with John Cage and Morty Feldman, the composers, along with the New York School poets, Frank O'Hara, uh, John Ashbery, Kenneth Koch. Everyone met at this place um, and stayed until you know they were thrown out at two or three in the morning. And that's where they blew off steam. And many of the younger artists, even younger than the second generation artists, said that's that was their true graduate school. That's where they went to learn about art, what the new ideas were, who was making it. There were no gallery owners there at the beginning. There were no collectors there. It was just the artists among themselves, you know, drink, nursing a few beers because they didn't have the money to buy bourbon at that point um, and eating a dollar plate of spaghetti. And so those places were real refuges because when you think about painting in your studio alone, trying to create something that has never existed before, creating a new vocabulary in art, which is what these artists were doing, it was such a lonely enterprise and so insecure. I mean, how do you know if what you're doing is any good? How do you know if it's what you want? And, and as they struggled, they, could have, they would have gone crazy if they hadn't had the support of other people who were doing exactly the same thing. And so every night they would go to the Cedar or the club. And on the weekends, they went to the club and listened to philosophers and theologists and poets and composers talk about broader ideas that also tied into what they were doing on canvas. And so it was this incredibly nurturing environment. I mean, part of the thrill for me of writing the book was to be able to spend time in that world. And I came out of it thinking, you know, if I could time travel to any point in history, I think that would have been it because they were taking a world that had been destroyed by the war and that had shown man at his most base. And they were trying to find beauty out of that. They were trying to find something that could be called art out of that. And, you know, philosophers were trying to make sense of it through philosophy, through existentialism. And, and theologians were trying to find some basis for, you know, religious belief. You know, where was God during all of that, that famous question? And dancers were trying to find new ways to move after years of movement that looked either like armies march, marching or concentration camp victims being, you know, marched into gas chambers. Where is the freedom of movement? Where do you find that? And so it was just an incredibly revolutionary and and fantastic period of, of artistic rebirth across disciplines. And it was all happening. It was happening in a lot of places around the world, but in America it was happening in, in lower Manhattan.
And so certainly for for these five artists, that community and those seeds that are planted become a part of their work. Kind of already touched on a little bit in terms of how they begin having their work seen and, and shown. But um, what was the process for them to kind of emerge from that world? And how has how has art history and eventually the art market at large responded to their work over time? Mm-hmm. The younger generation, the three younger women, Grace, Helen, and uh, Joan, benefited from some enlightened gallery owners who who saw their work, you know, despite market turns against women and not only liked it, but they, they loved it. And one of the most important gallery owners who had both Grace and Helen as his as part of his stable, and in fact, who gave Grace the first show in his new gallery was John Bernard Myers, who was the director of the Tibor Dinage Gallery in New York. And he was this kind of outsized, wild character who was much more than a gallery director. He was kind of like a circus barker. You know, he created performances. He created environments where artists could do whatever they wanted. And he did everything he could to, to give them the money and the, the space to, to work. And so he had absolutely no, no concern about gender. In fact, he was a gay man who, and, and, the, and the men who were around his gallery didn't in any way hide their homosexuality, though, despite the fact that in the 50s, this was still considered a felony. So it was this really free kind of social and and artistic environment. And that's where Helen and Grace were nurtured. And, And from those roots, from that basis, both from their experiences within the first generation, you know, the Lee and Elaine and Pollock and de Kooning kind of inspiration, they then, with John Bernard Myers' help, really blossomed and never thought of themselves or ne- never fell into the trap of thinking of themselves as women artists. Joan Mitchell had a little bit more of a difficult path because she was a more difficult person. She and John didn't get along, though. She should have She should have been in the Tibor Dinage Gallery, but they had a personal falling out and it didn't happen. So Jan- Joan had a more difficult path to finding a gallery owner, but her work was so fantastic, so undeniably good, that when Eleanor Ward opened the Stable Gallery, which became one of the most important galleries showing avant-garde work in the 50s, she made Joan one of her initial recruits. And so those three younger women never had any problem finding exhibitions. In fact, in 1957, they were featured in Life Magazine as in an article article called Women Artists in the Ascendance. And Life Magazine had the widest circulation of any magazine in the country. And so it went out to 5 million subscribers showing full page pictures of these women surrounded by their paintings. And some younger artists and art historians who saw that have been quoted and, and have told me, you know, opening those pages and seeing that was a revelation. Not only were these women artists, but it showed, pointed a way for these younger women to be artists, that they could follow a path that previously they thought was closed to them. And so, so, so there was a real coming out of the, of the younger artists. Now, by the, by the 1959, the abstract expressionist movement in general was, was dead. Um, pop art had been discovered and heralded and caught the attention of not only museum directors, but gallery owners and collectors. And so the kind of messy abstract expressionism that arose out of the war was no longer popular and wasn't commanding the kind of attention in art magazines and in museums and galleries that it once did. The first victims of that shift in emphasis and that shift in in artistic taste were the women creating it. And so to answer your question, how did history treat them? The answer is not very well. For a few decades between the 60s and let's say 
the 80s, after the second wave feminist movement in the 70s, made a point of saying that women weren't being represented in museums. Women in art were not visible. Helen Frankenthaler always had gallery representation. Joan Mitchell was living in France. She had shows in Paris and shows in New York. Lee struggled to get representation, but once again, she had surprisingly, her first retrospective was in London. Elaine never really had strong gallery representation. She had shows and some solo exhibitions, but in general, her first sellout show didn't occur until shortly before her death uh, in the late 80s. And so all of these women were, were sort of set adrift as the artistic taste focused on men and focused on the, the various new art movements that kind of came out like changes of fashion. You know, it was pop art and minimalism and op art and then um, neo-expressionism. And so the, the women of the abstract expressionist movement, as they had during all of the kind of peaks and valleys of the art movement from the 1929 to 1959, kept working. And actually, it paid off for them because by 1983, the Museum of Art, Modern Art was finally willing to recognize a woman artist and give her uh, a retrospective, and that woman was Lee Krasner. And it was through the work of art historian Barbara Rose, who really hustled um, to get Lee to that point. And so the show opened in Houston, but by the time it got to New York in 1983, Lee was already dead. And so she didn't get to participate in her triumph in New York, this thing that she knew she deserved, but that she hadn't received because of one fact and one fact only, and that was because she was a woman. And Helen became the second woman to get a retrospective at MoMA after Lee. And so eventually the art world kind of rediscovered them. Joan has always sold sold well. But even today, and we'll see what happens in this upcoming auction season in November, but even last fall, even after so-called women artists had been discovered and had been, you know, the, the whole issue of women not being represented in galleries and not being shown uh, in permanent exhibitions at museums, even after there had been several decades of um, activism on, beha- part of, on, on behalf of women artists, the, the the auctions last fall failed to produce the kind of record-breaking sales for women that had been anticipated. And I'll give you an example. In there was a at Christie's, there was a 1959 painting of Helen's that had never been on the market before. A beautiful painting. It, Christie's had it for sale between for between five million and eight million. You know, one of her counterparts, a male counterpart from 1959, would have commanded. 40 million to 50 million for a painting. Helen's didn't even sell. It didn't even reach the basic asking price. Joan had an auction, also at Christie's last fall, had a painting up for auction, a gorgeous painting, huge. Its range was 12 million to 16 million. It was easily a $40 million painting, should have broken all records. It went for 14 million. So it went to the mid range. So after that, I I spoke with a Christie's curator and said, you know, what happened? I mean, it was so demoralizing because the buildup to that auction and the anticipation that these women would have set new records and that collectors would have finally appreciated and given them the breakthrough moment that they deserved. I asked her what happened. And she said, basically, it's that collectors still don't recognize the value of a painting done by a woman. I mean, I can't fathom actually myself that someone would see a painting, love a painting, and then 
look at the signature and see that it was done by a woman and decide that that wasn't something they were interested because of that. And it reminded me of a quote from a critic. I think it was in the early 40s, uh, talking about Louise Nevelson's work. And in print, this person so guilelessly said that it was such a great piece of work, and he would have been really enthusiastic about it, but luckily he had seen that it was done by a woman and caught himself before he said how wonderful it was. So that attitude... 60 years later, 70 years later, hasn't really changed. And and that's something that we have to work on. And, and this curator told me it's a matter of scholarship that until collectors and until museums and until our gallery owners and until critics are schooled in women artists, not because they're women, but because they're great artists, until they learn to, you know, to exceed this bias, it's not going to change. Well, Mary, I think that uh, your book um, has has certainly had a big impact on people's perception, um, and I, I it, it's fascinating to me how I will um, hear from uh, artists that I interact with around the country, and they all are recommending the, this book to me, and and they're excited about it, and they're excited to learn these stories and learn this this history. So, thank you so much for uh, for writing it and sharing these stories, and of course, we've only been able to scratch the surface in our conversation today. And I would highly recommend if you haven't read Ninth Street Women that you pick it up. And I would encourage you to get, this is one book that you're definitely going to want the hard copy. The, um, uh, the, the photos that are included of the work and of these artists is, are, are just beautifully done. Um, it's a book that you're going to want to have in your library. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing this story. Thank you so much for your time, Jason. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. And again, there will be links um, below the podcast where you can pick this book up on Amazon. Thanks for joining us. We'll look forward to seeing you in the next podcast.